Welcome to Culture Factor. I'm your host, Holly Shannon. Our new season looks at creators, innovators, and entrepreneurs. Why? Because the gig economy is emerging. Talent has gone to work for themselves. Whether furloughed or part of the great resignation, they've birthed the big idea, and those 57 million Americans are contributing more than $1 trillion to the U.S. economy annually. This is what the new normal looks like. You now have a front row seat to creator culture and into the places where the magic is being made. Subscribe now to Culture Factor so your ears are treated to some of the best stories around the world. And if you take the time to rate, review, and share this, please send me the screenshot and I'll give you a shout out on my show. Please reach out if you'd like to sponsor Culture Factor. It is your opportunity to be a part of a show that is ranked in the top 2% globally and heard in over 77 countries. Email holly at hollyshannon.com to be a part of this global audience. So hello, everybody. I have Michael Giuliano here today, and he's been dubbed a modern day impresario and one of the most influential guys you've never heard of. And he likes it that way. We have him here today to uh, talk about how he helps people compete at game speed, win, and have fun. But also you should know that Michael is frequently requested by name by the Fortune 500's elite, including 40 of the Fortune 100. He's also frequently requested by name by military elite special forces, the two largest private equity firms, and some of the highest rank NCAA athletic programs. He has successfully designed, developed, patented, and commercialized products in excess of $2 billion and, ready for this, the highest single price point fully crowdfunded campaign to date. It's almost hard to say that in one sentence. He started his career at tech giant Intel Corporation, earning distinct engineering honors spanning some of the highest profile product launches on record in the digital and mobility spaces. Wow. Michael, welcome to Culture Factor. So glad you Thank you're here. you for having me. Of course, let's dig right in because I want to um, I want the world to hear your viewpoint because a lot of notables really want your viewpoint. So let's talk about the concept of idea versus execution. We see a lot happening in the new gig economy, the new creator economy that has emerged out of COVID. So do you see an emergence of entrepreneurs that where there is a divide between those who create tangible things and those who sell the big idea yet to be created? I think uh, there's a little chicken and egg there. People that make something tangible, if you look over time, generational wealth, you look at uh, people whose names are on buildings, they either make, move, mine, or farm something. So they either provide food, raw material, they get it there, or they put it all together and make the finished good. So you can see uh, the Ruan family maybe in Iowa, they they happen to be pretty good at uh, at, at, at that kind of stuff. You see Rockefeller, you see, see all the different people through time. They either make, mine, move, or farm something. But somebody had to have a vision, not on how to farm right now, but how to farm better. 
somebody has to be the idea person uh, to create a charter to go do new things that have never been done before. Somebody has to think, um, hey, uh, how am I going to make something wireless? How am I going to? There's a the quote that, that that's out there that the the constant improvement of the the candle didn't make the light bulb. Uh, I probably messed that up really bad, but there has to be idea people, and these people have to get their ideas funded. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have cash. It helps, but they need resources. They need uh, diversity and perspective. They need expertise that they don't have. They need machines. They need whatever they need. So you need both. You can't really have one without the other, I don't think. You have to have somebody that says, wouldn't it be cool if, and then they need to be around, surrounded by people that can say, we could if, not we can't because. And then when you get all the we could ifs, you have to surround them with uh, the subsegments of the people that make the that bake the cake before. And you have to have the people that um, have the flour, sugar, eggs, water, mixers, and ovens to do it. So uh, you can be an idea person, but then you quickly have to be able to join forces with the people who have done it before or want to learn and fail quickly on doing so. So I think both are equal. They're both needed. Uh, otherwise, you just have more of the same. What's really interesting to me is I think you've been both the chicken and the egg. Yep. Could you? That's accurate. <laughs> That's um, accurate. Could you give an example of where where you where that came into play? Both the chicken and the egg, or the idea and the execution. So the idea, um, I could tell you that uh, I played sports and I have a lot of injuries from that. And I went to meet with a spinal surgeon in Dallas, Texas. And he said, um, you know, we're in this case for eight hours. We had to do a corrective surgery and the person um, was in a horrific car accident, but already had uh, rods in them. So they had to go in and cut the rods. The problem is they put the person on the operating table. They have to make a large incision. They have to uh, spend a lot of time in there. And these things are made out of titanium. They don't just break. So the process in breaking one of those, removing one of those, and then putting one in takes a lot of time, effort, stress, all of that. And it leaves you open for all kinds of uh, issues, uh, insurance issues, health issues. Uh, you can get too close to the spinal cord. There's all kinds of stuff that's in there. One of the uh, physician assistants said, wouldn't it be cool if we just go in and go and get it done? Well, the sound is a saw. And they were using something that looked like giant wire cutters. They were surgical, but they looked like giant bolt cutters to get them out. And these people were wrestling with it and doing all this. And the person's background uh, their father was a jewelry maker. And so post-surgical, uh, we were drawing up ideas. And the idea that she came up with was, if this is the rod, why don't we get something that goes over top of it, buzzes it out, and then instead of us trying to do this, which is impossible. Titanium's kind of hard to just smash or cut like uh, with bolt cutters. And... A diamond saw is what's used to cut jewelry. So this person uh, and myself, we worked on 
using a jewelry saw or the components, the main components of a jewelry saw and going in and being able to, from the time somebody's open to cut a piece of titanium, you're able to get a surgical method patent and then also make something that, that does that and uh, worked on that team, led the, co-led the team, whatever you want to say, was part of the team and was tasked with getting the patent, getting the process, and then turning that into something tangible that a doctor could use. Off of that exact same place, the exact same doctor that I was going down because of my neck and my back from football said, when these people recover, they have large incisions and they'll put ice on it. Well, ice can cause you to vasoconstrict, so your pipes get narrower, uh, less blood flow, less oxygen, so not always good. You can get frostbite. There's tons of frostbite that people get using ice or, or eutectic salts or gels or ice packs, big insurance issues, and you know none of that's good for post-surgical. He said, if I can get something that had all of the benefits of ice, but was not 32 degrees, that would be useful. So we worked with a chemical that likes to freeze at 42 degrees. And at 42 degrees, they spec that to be appropriate, that it provided the necessary benefits of what ice does, but you were just right where you weren't vasoconstricting. It's impossible to get frostbite at that temperature, but it provided the same therapeutic benefit or post-surgical benefit. And I started a company off of that and figured out how to distill the chemical. And then soon after that, we made a factory out of it. And we did a lot of learning and a lot of failing, but we made the machines that made the stuff. And then eventually we made about 31 products in a 510K facility. And uh, we employed some people and we had a nice little run. Uh, I don't think we reached our full potential, but uh, there's a patent surgical tool and also a uh, post-surgical endo-exothermic endothermic and exothermic thing that came out of a meeting on a sore back and a sore neck. So that would be one example. (laughs) That's so amazing. Um, So there's a lot to unpack there. And that's just one thing, right? You go down and you say, hey, this stinks. And then you get a couple nerds in a room and the magic happens. So that was me from Ohio going down to see uh, one of the more prominent uh, surgeons in uh, in Texas who also does stuff in the UCLA system. And the PA told me what sucks. And that's really how stuff stink, or starts. What stinks? And you go solve a problem. Now, as far as, as, far as uh, doing something from original um, and then carrying something through to, um, you know, being the idea person to getting something that was, and then continuing it further. Um, I've worked with 40 of the Fortune 100, uh, maybe even more by now. And that spans consumer products as boring as soap and shampoo and conditioner. I've worked with steel mills and aluminum mills, and I've taken seconds, minutes, hours out of producing probably, arguably one of the bigger platforms in the world, the Honda Civic platform for Honda. I've done work with Harley Davidson. So I've done vehicle stuff, but then I've also done some pretty cool stuff. When I was at Intel, I made Pentium chips, which were dual core, quad core, eight core. And I was a industrial systems engineer. So you had to 
work on the lithography. You had to work on the etch. You had to work on the implant, which puts metal in, and then the planer, which sands it down and not sands it down, but planes it down. And you had to take an existing process, an existing production sequence, and make it better, make it quicker, make it faster. And you did that by listening to, at that time, it would have been a Michael Dell at Dell Computer, uh, how to meet, build to order, quicker, faster, better, safer. safer. Uh, you had to listen to a lot of technologies that didn't quite exist yet. So somebody else was the idea guy. So Johnny Ive might have been the industrial designer and Steve Jobs may have been going from making purple computers out of plastic with no Intel chip to in the future, putting on Intel chips and gaining market share. So that's cool, sexy, high tech uh Back then, it was Silicon Valley. If you say Silicon Valley today, you know they're not really there because people don't talk like that anymore. So late 90s, early 2000s was there as well. So just lots of totally different things, but it's getting the right people on the bus, getting the wrong people to bleep off of the bus, and then putting the people on the bus in the right seats. And uh, being able to do that, you can make great teams that perform at the highest levels, they reach things that they've never achieved or even dreamed they can achieve independently. And you can get uh, some pretty breakthrough things. And it's pretty exciting, but the process never changes. You know, what's so interesting to me is the diversity of experience and how that plays into this. Thank you. Yeah, I, you really have such an incredible background. I feel like I didn't even tap into it in the intro, but I think what that, yeah, no, what that allows you to do. I played sports too. I'm not just a nerd. I played sports too, so. (laughs) You know, I think when you come to the, you know, I think it was a, was it Malcolm Gladwell's book with the 10,000 hours? And I actually am, I've never been a 10,000 hour person. I've been, Mm. uh, you know. Let's, let's say 2,000 hours or whatever number I'm just going to pull out of the air in many different things. And it sounds like you're similar that way in that you have all of these diverse experiences and it allows you to be the idea guy where you can step back and look at something and maybe create a different way of approaching a problem you know, if you only do one thing all the time and you're trained a certain way, sometimes it's hard to get off the bus and think a little bit differently, look outside in, right? So I would say you're a divergent thinker. You're always looking at the whole picture. You're looking down at the whole thing. Yeah, I'm looking at the, I'm looking, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, I'm, I'm, so my background, uh, my undergrad, and if you're a parent listening and your kid wants to be an engineer and you only think that there's chemical, electrical, and civil, Uh, That's not the case. Uh, One of the oldest ones is industrial and systems engineering, and they study how to make things, then how to make the factory, then how to run the factory, and ultimately how to run the company. So they study efficiency, and they study all of the disciplines, plus business, efficiency, and some of those other things. Tim Cook, the head of Apple, he's an industrial and systems engineer by degree. A lot of these guys at Amazon, a lot of the guys and gals that are leading the way in industry right now. They were industrial and systems engineers. And then as a master's, I also have a master's in uh, engineering again, uh, same discipline, different focus, uh, more on the numbers. So the quantitative analytics, the business, uh, predictive analytics, so you can get large data sets and be 
not just kind of right, but you can be predictive and prescriptive in nature. Um, and that goes into the AI. So how do how can I get watch you or a group of people do something and then tell you what you want to eat for lunch before you think about what you want to eat for lunch? Uh, all of that comes out of that discipline. I would argue, not argue to argue, but I would I would say that you have um, I probably have however many 20 years is or no 25 years of one thing. And that's solving very big story problems. And that's focusing on two things, people and process. So we talked about getting the right people on the bus, getting the wrong people to bleep off the bus, and then uh, putting them in the right position. That comes from one of my favorite coaches, Nick Saban for Alabama. He says that all the time. So that's where that's from. I, I, I have to bleep it out because we're on your show, but that's some locker room talk from a you know, the greatest college football coach in history, according to his titles. Now, I want to get the right people, but if they don't have a playbook and they don't have a standard or they don't have a system or they don't have they don't have a way that that's agreed upon. They don't know what they stand for. So I can get an amazing system that is built by design to be more effective, more efficient, more consistent because we designed it that way from benchmarking, from learning, from making stuff, from doing anything. And you take out all the inefficiencies and I can get very average, normal, regular people, which is the majority of the population, right? If I can get the normal curve and get the thickest band of people, population wise and ability wise, and say, I can put any of those people on a superior system because it was designed that way, I could beat the hell out of you if you have no system or a random system in a team of all-stars because they're going to be doing this. But if you know what's expected of you, how success is, me is measured, what to expect of each other, you get both. Now you're the dream team from Magic, Jordan, and Bird from a long time ago. Now you're Apple, Win. Jobs finally got Johnny Ive uh, for the industrial design and uh, Kawasaki for the marketing. Um, you start having that whole team and it's not just uh, there's great parts of Steve Jobs. Uh, people like to talk about him, but I was in that industry for a little while. Um, there's a lot of people that didn't like him and didn't like his style. But when he acknowledged, hey, I can't be everything to everyone. And I can't take over the world and, and, until I build a world-class team. That's when Apple became what it is today. And you see that with sports. You see uh, Michael Jordan didn't have Pippen and Phil Jackson. Eventually, Phil Jackson, Pippen, and even Rodman. Three totally different people. Michael Jordan did not go out and wear girls' clothes and dress like Dennis Rodman and do silly stuff. But you know what? They won a ton of championships together. Same thing with Scottie Pippen. Same guy, Phil Jackson, went out and taught a Kobe and a Shaq how to go win together. Uh, it's too bad Ego got in the way for a little bit. Uh, I think they could have won forever. But when he was able to go out there and put in the triangle offense, which was proven with Jordan, and he had a younger Jordan, in, or what he sought to be a younger Jordan in Kobe, that's when Kobe stopped shooting air balls and started winning rings. And when he was able to balance out that it's okay to have Kobe, who was the best guard, 
and it's okay to have Shaq, who was the best center, when they weren't worried about who the best player was, but they were worried about uh, rings and championships versus points and MVP awards. That was the best that you ever saw the Lakers play. So I don't think this ever changes. You apply it to life now. If you understand the team dynamic and how people play for each other, not with each other, um, you see that interdependence is always more beautiful and sounds better, looks better than independence. Uh, and you look at the we instead of the me, uh, you're going to get these breakthrough teams with break, breakthrough performance. Oh, I love that. So it, it sounds like you would prioritize investing in people over ideas. 100%. 100%. If I don't have a high quality, high integrity, hardworking, delayed gratification type person, and they're more about look at me or they're one of my favorite players to watch was Allen Iverson. He would do the most electric moves. He would do things you've never seen before in a very, very small frame. He probably got the most out of anybody under six foot frame ever in the NBA. But the point is, it was just him. He never had a ring. He never had a banner. And I think under the right coaching and under the right system, if they would have got the right players around him, there's no reason he couldn't have been even greater. He's Hall of Fame, but there's no reason he couldn't be even better than he was because they would have brought the best out in him. So yeah, people first, people run businesses. That's it. We're never going to get away from it. No industry 4.0, no fully automated this. Some Somebody has to define the spec. Robots don't think of the idea themselves. Someone had to program that robot. Yeah, people first, and then very quickly, before you put the people together, you have to have the process. Because if I play, like I play college football a little bit, if you are a pro-style offense, or if you are a wing T, or you're a triple option or whatever, if you have an option quarterback and a passing offense, they might be amazing. It's just not the right one for the program. It doesn't mean you don't like them. It doesn't mean that they stink, and it doesn't mean they can't adjust. But if that's not their thing, you're putting somebody that's not a mismatch for your program or your system. The other thing is sometimes you can get too many people that are the exact same. So that's, I think, the danger of culture today at companies. You'll get some really talented people, and they've got to where they are, and they'll hire people that are submissive, and they won't get the fastest people on the field anymore. They'll start hiring C's and D's because they know that they're a B player. You know, like the saying, A's hire a, other A's, B's hire C's and D's. So you see that now that with the access to Google and the internet and all this other fun stuff that some of these people aren't as strong as they think they are. They know that they got lucky to be there. And now it is, uh, I'm going to hire all B's and C's. And then the B's and C's create an insular level that they promote people to the point of incompetence. And you have a bunch of overpaid, unproductive, pathetic people in the corporate world. And you see that a lot of these companies are really struggling and there's no loyalty, there's no process, there's no nothing. And they're doing a terrible job creating uh, the right culture. They're not competitive. And you're seeing little kids that, and I say kids respectfully because I'm 43 and you see these teenies and late teens, early 20s. There's a kid sitting in their mom's basement right now tapping out better code than half of the Fortune 500. 
and they can work in a team and a group and be selfless and they might be the next unicorn company. How could a gentleman who likes rock and roll, Branson, launch a rocket and beat NASA? How could a guy that has a million ideas per minute but knows how to turn the potential into kinetic, Elon Musk, how can he beat NASA? Those are two people born in two different places at two different times, and they can beat NASA in the outer space game. It's because, one, they're incandescently bright, they're very talented, but they have a process, and they beat the pants out of some of the top scientists or top scientists on, on Earth. They just know how to build great, high-performing teams. And if I told you 20 years ago, NASA is going to choke and that Branson, who owns ultimately a record company and entertainment thing, and uh, Elon Musk, who was at the time making PayPal, would then go on to do Tesla and then would go on to do SpaceX. You'd tell me I was insane, that, that the smartest people in the world are, are NASA people. And then you get Bezos. He made a marketplace. Uh, that for books. And then now it's, I want everything on demand and the package comes to your door tomorrow. He's in the space race too. So if I told you those three flavor of people would be beating NASA's butt, you would not believe me, but they are today. You know, it's interesting. Those people, you know, they're obviously called, you know, visionaries, but they're in the weeds. They're trying everything and moving forward by doing that. So it's trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. You know, today there's that term, which I'm actually not really a fan of. It's the fail forward. Um, mm -hmm. I don't, I think that's such a strong word. Okay. Like when you hear like a, a business has failed, it's, it's gone under. <laughs> We're mm -hmm. not talking about process of trial and error. It's kind of a little different, but they knew that they needed to keep trying different iterations and working towards what they were creating. And it's quite likely, we'll probably never know this, that they had a different idea, but in doing all that trial and error, era, they, they found even another way to do something and something even bigger came from it. I'm often asked, does my business need a podcast? My answer is yes, that nothing else is the fast track into thought leadership and being established and seen as the expert in your industry as podcasting. What's increasingly evident is that it's a branding machine. It kicks doors open for you to have conversations with leaders. It creates a pathway to partnerships and connections on a deeper level. You will not be your industry's best kept secret. Your ideas and business will have global reach. So step into your power. Go to hollyshannon.com to launch your podcast now. And now back to our interview. You know, I see personally in the marketplace, I see a lot of people with the big idea and they're on their computers trying to create a business, but it's not tangible and it's, it's limiting. I, I think you have to get out there and actually get out do. from behind your computer. Right. You have to do, you have to actually get out there and try and make uh, something. Eventually here. I mean, this is very random, but somebody can draw a pretty picture of something, but eventually they need to learn 
material science. Eventually they need to learn how to turn that sketch into something. And the more that you can be a Swiss army knife and have at least a medium level knowledge that you can communicate, Hey, I want to make something. What's it made out of metal? I want it lightweight. Okay. But I need it to be strong. Okay. But I need it to do this, this, and this, and I need to make this many per day. Well, now you can start creating tangible go-do's and you can say, I want to make something out of aluminum or as they say somewhere else, aluminum. Well, this is a, a forging or a casting, right? Now I know that that's near nut shape and it's not exact, but then maybe I can machine that part and have threads on the inside. And that might be an automotive piece. That might be whatever it is, an airplane piece. But eventually you have to be able to 3D print and get to a near net shape. So I have to be able to make something that gets to a near net shape, but it's just plastic. But then I know that, hey, that's correct. And I can beat it up, get some feedback from a client and then go to market quicker than anybody who cannot do that. I need to know material science to 3D print something fancy that eventually, not that I did this, I'm not going to take credit for this, but um, maybe I know a little bit about it, but maybe this will be the sole of a shoe someday that you see at a company that rhymes with uh, Adidas. But uh, <laughs> what they did is they worked with a company called Carbon, who does 3D printing, but they're able to do it out of a different material. And people like Lisa Lehman and uh, some of the other people, the Simone family, they own Carbon, and they're changing the way that we can build a shoe. They're changing the way. So Carbon 3D prints, but it looks like resin. It's cured with light. And it looks like the Terminator, like something's being pulled up out of it versus 3D printers that look like it's shooting weed whacker spool. So you could see something that looks like this that might be the tread on a tire or a rover, wink, wink. But I can go like that with it. And that was 3D printed, right? There's all kinds of stuff, but these are functional materials with new ways to manufacture and you can see that maybe this might be a great wheel some days and go somewhere. But then if someone needs to change a tire on Mars, it might go like that. You never know what it's going to be, but there's materials and there's all these, all these things come out of we could if, not we can't because. But you do need to know your stuff and you need to stand on uh, math. You need to stand on dollars and cents. You need to stand on facts and engineering. And you need to have the right team in place to go out and execute. Well, you, you kind of were a little preemptive because I was going to ask you about um, how this past season, year and a half, has pushed us to adapt. And it, it, you've shown uh, uh, examples of that. It's interesting to me because... Yeah, all of those are current projects, by the way. They're physically on my desk, which I didn't plan, but they are physically on my desk. So I'm just showing you right no. this second. No, that's great. That's perfect. Uh, we were on the same plane. You knew where I was going. So you just, you just showed us. It's interesting to me and, and I don't want to necessarily be talking about myself. I really want to just talk about the process. But when I was doing jewelry design, not that long ago, 
one of the things that, let's see. Oh, look at you. You made a beautiful cross. Was that diamonds in there? No comment. I drew this and had it wax 3D'd and melted my grandparents' uh, entire uh, wedding rings. And that's the ring I have on my finger. So there's some additive manufacturing, Added, some yes. prototyping, and some material science for you. <laughs> which which is something I've actually had to explain to people yeah. um, because they don't understand the terminology 3D printing, which is actually additive manufacturing. It's putting yeah. layers upon layers and building something up. So it brings us back to building, right? But mm -hmm. what was interesting is I had done something similarly. So I had been creating jewelry using techniques that were created, you know, hundreds of years ago, you know, like lost wax casting. But I also decided to learn 3D. Yes. Yeah, so that was a combination. You're right. So yeah. I wanted to learn 3D printing to see if there was an application for that in my design process. Just curious. I think we always need to know as new things come on deck uh, to how to use them or not use them. But in going through that process of hand drawing something, taking a picture of it, using that JPEG file, uploading it to become a, an STL file, an SVG file, bringing it into, um, you know, like Tinkercad to uh, give it its 3D, if you will. Um, I went through all that process and then I printed in a plastic like you did, a flexible nylon plastic before I had it cast which again, that lost wax casting methodology. And in doing that, what I found really fun is when I got the pieces back, like one piece I got was the pendant I had created, which was very large. And I wanted to turn it into a pair of earrings. So I had to go backwards in the process and thin it out so that it was much lighter. Mm -hmm. And then when that piece came in, I went back to my old tools, the jeweler saw that you used to cut the titanium pull with and mm -hmm. cut that piece where I wanted it to make yeah. it smaller into an earring and then send that back out to be cast. So you can take old methodologies and new methodologies and wane, wax and wane between the two of them till you oh, get yeah. just the right iteration. So to me, building and producing and making tangible things is what people really need to try to do. Like get out from behind your computers and use your hands and play and do things because it's the marriage, right? It's the marriage of your knowledge, what you can do online, but what you can do with your hands and what could be used in the real world, tangible things you could yeah. actually pick up and use, right? Yeah the devil's in the details. Yeah. And I don't think that's ever going to go away. I think something like when, when I was younger and a lot of people were younger, they would say that person's smart, but they're calculator dependent, which means they can't do the math without the tool. I love that. <clears throat> now, that was a very big insult. If you were an engineer, they'd say you're calculator dependent. Today, you see people are dependent on this. They cannot function without this. They can't communicate. They can't think. It's even to the point where I say, who won the game the other day? Even if you know who won the game, people's instinct is to get on one of these silly things and Google it and see who could be more sophisticated and know that Holly had three dunks and you want to see this and blah, 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 blah. 
And they don't just say, oh, the home team won or the away. They are, people are so dependent on a laptop. They're so dependent on a telephone. They're so dependent on these tools that when you take them away, they can't do anything. And you see exactly to your point, a person who I could walk you through the stuff that I'm working on right now. I can say that this week working with the working with a young lady that is working on uh, making bags. I used paper, cardboard, tape, $5,000 Juki sewing machines, $1 million Gerber automatic cutting tools, but you're going back and forth. Pattern, textile, reality, this, you're going back and forth. Why would I need to go to AutoCAD to make a rectangle when paper comes in a rectangle? <laughs> Couldn't I just use that? And use what every little kid has, a circle template, mm -hmm. right? Little circle template, 99 cents at Target. Couldn't I use that? And a pair of these things, they've had these for a while, right? Scissors. Mm -hmm. Can I use that to then get pretty close pretty quick? Or do I have to say, oh, I need my computer. I need my There's that. There's an app for that. There's an app for that. Well, I can show you that I can go and now make a prototype of a bespoke women's collection signed by all the nerds who were there in the room that did it. And I could do that in two hours when if you were asking, hey, how do we go do that? They're going to say it's millions of dollars. There's a design fee. What is your feelings? And there's going to be all these pseudo intellectuals who have never done anything stuck in a cafe, drinking overpriced coffee, talking about how are we going to market and how many fans are we going to have? And while they're doing that and you'll have to bleep it out, I'm going to kick their ass because I'm just going to go make the damn thing and start shipping it. And while you're figuring out, you know, people's feelings and your Instagram account, it's not reality. I can't go buy that in a store and I never will be. So the people that are able to go from here, from their head to pencil paper, talk with a human being. I've never done it not in person. Uh, it's kind of hard for me to, you know, turn physical stuff and transform it uh, via text. Uh, everything's always in person. And for the people that say that it's not, yeah, you can collaborate. I could send you drawings. I can do this. I can do that. But ultimately, things have to get produced and made. And they don't just pop out of thin air. The last time I checked, all contracts that have two commas or more, sometimes three commas, not been a part of too many of those, but contracts that have two commas and a lot of zeros, they're done like this, face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. The person you can usually reach out and touch, they get their little fancy uh, fountain pens and sign the fancy contract, and then you, you go You mean it's home. not DocuSign? <laughs> it, ain't doc it ain't DocuSign, it ain't <sighs> an app, it's on a silly piece of paper, they look each other in the face, they shake hands, they say good job, and then that's it. And it has never changed, and I don't see it changing anytime soon. Now, there's this fictional world where people glamorize, I can draw something in my crayon on a thing, and I own the idea, and I'll go make a website, and I'll go crowdfund my dream, and, you know, that Elon Musk didn't go do that. Nobody that you want to be like ever did that. Nobody with their name on the side of a building, no head of an industry 
did it by talking in a cafe and then going and getting a sugar daddy, which is what I'm going to call it, to go make them have a comfortable life uh, and use the word runway that people are using now. Oh, you mean you want to make more than a doctor because you have a crayon drawing and some very silly rich people will go, okay, and let you play around on their dime. And if it turns into something, they bet well. Well, little news, you're not the only pretty girl. They probably have 10 people that are doing the exact same task. And whoever wins that race is going to be the one. So these all these people that are in college coming out saying, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I could draw a picture, crowdsource, blah, 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 blah. What happens if the internet goes out of fashion? What happens if the laws change? What happens if you know the world changes? It did 15 years ago when we all got on. These are tools that we can use. We've had some of that, but now people aren't throwing million dollars at crayon drawings and good pitch decks anymore. You could barely get 100000 to go buy a machine for a $10 million a month company that's actually building stuff for 20 years. So this fantasy that people are still holding on to when you listen to apps like Clubhouse or some of these other ones, there's a bunch of idea people, but there's nothing behind it. They have an idea and... 20 years ago, you would have just been talking smack at a kitchen table and somebody else would have been plowing the land, planting the seed, watering the crop and growing the farm. That's the farmer's mentality, right? You have the manufacturer who gets the people together, lines up the machines, builds a thing, trains people on how to do it, choreographs a beautiful symphony called a factory, and they're able to make cars for the masses. This little draw picture in Crayola Crayon and say IP, crowdfund, pitch deck. I think some of those people, uh, well, I don't think I know. There's only a few of them, uh, and that might be in a couple niches, but the the rest of them, we got to go build stuff and we got to work with real people. And those are the people in this gig economy that are getting stuff done. You have to, here's the word that I hate, add value. Adding value comes from industrial engineering. Adding value means you're transforming something from a raw material and you're actually making it more valuable by adding something to it. It doesn't mean good idea. It doesn't it, there's a transformative step where you get a piece of metal and turn it into a car door. That's value added. You paint it and then you put it on the car. Those are value added steps. Moving around doing all the other stuff, non-value added. So now it's funny to hear everyone seems to have the right buzzwords, but they have nothing behind it. And um, I hope that goes away pretty soon. Just a quick break to let you know that we had a little technical difficulty here. And as we jumped back into our conversation, we started to talk a little bit about uh, substance and supply chain. So let's continue. See somebody who can draw a picture and get millions of dollars to go fund their dream. Um, If they spent as much time working on making something tangible, building relationships with people who they would want to be on their team, lining up the supply chain, or partnering with the end customer to understand what they want and how they want it and how they need it, um, that's time better spent than drawing a crayon pitch deck with some cool illustrators that make cartoon videos about stuff that nobody on the team is capable of doing. Um, You see California, I was out there 
2015 through 2018 working on electric vehicles uh, that we did make, we did sell to the public, and we did sell the company. We were building things. We were riding them. We were working with people, and we were in the magazines, and we did sell the product, and people did go ride it. We lived in reality. There were plenty of people at that exact same time that were saying, imagine my vision of 2030 and how this is going to be, and I need runway. Runway? I don't know people that want to give up equity for not a lot of money. If you have a billion-dollar idea, I probably don't want to be giving away free candy in the lobby. So we're nearing the end of our show and we had yet another technical difficulty. My apologies. So we were just talking about runway here. And when we came back together, Michael Giuliano and I started talking about being an influencer versus being influential. So here we go. If you're great, the stadium fills up, the people go nuts, the jersey sales happen, the tickets happen, the television contracts happen. You can get the car, the house, all of it. But if you have the car, the house, the fans, the stadium, none of that makes you great. So I would look at it that way. Michael Jordan never took a selfie ever in his life. If you're really good, the people are going to follow you because you're great at whatever you do. And if your team is great, people love rock bands. People love athletics. It's almost if you go anywhere, any college campus, 100,000 people at, at, at uh, the biggest universities to watch football. Uh, they don't have uh, music venues that big uh, until you reach stadium status. So if you have all of the things, you have fans, when you get that little blue check mark, Twitter doesn't cut you a check. When you get a million people on Instagram, Instagram doesn't cut you a check. But I guarantee if you invent something, do something, you could have as many or as little fans. I'm sure those will populate. So having fans, followers, and whatever, that's nice. But ultimately, you want customers. So that goes back again to working with people, asking them what they want, how they want it, delivering it to them, and then listening. Did you like that? Is that what you wanted? And they're going to tell you, no, it stinks. I want something else. You listen, you make another one, another one, another one. You fail a bunch of times, but you listen. And eventually you have the best evangelist ever because they're going to be able to identify with the product or service that you provide. It's inclusive in nature because you did listen. And the closer your ear is to their mouth, the closer your hand will always be to their wallet. And that's a Japanese saying, but uh, yeah. If you're not listening to what the customer wants and solving a problem, you could be as you could spend all your time trying to market, trying to gain followers. This is all pretend stuff. I need 500 followers. Fortune number one, fortune number two, fortune number three through 500. If I don't have more than 500 followers, I'm fine. As long as those are C suites or people who can cut a check, I'm happy. Because that means they're going to buy my company before I even sell the product. And that's a really big number. That is so well said. I, I want to finish on that note. Uh, I know that um, we could keep talking because I, I love the focus of influence without substance is really nothing at all. 
Yeah, I think being influential is what people need to worry about. Being this influencer, it's pretend. It's nice. It's neat to think you're a movie star. But there's only one PewDiePie that plays video games and has 5 trillion followers and gets paid to do that. There's only one Logan Paul who just blocks Floyd Mayweather for a zillion dollars and is creating a new segment. There's only one, uh, like in education, there's one Travis Schwan. That's it. There's, a, I mean, there's Neil deGrasse Tyson. You have other people that you admire, but there's one Travis Schwan. Uh, there's, there's only, um, there's only one of you, right? So trying to be every girl, it, it should be getting a little old trying to look like Kim Kardashian. It should get a little old trying to be Paris Hilton. Those girls aren't getting paid. And if this is your side hustle and you're not getting paid, you're the one getting hustled. I love that. I'm, I'm finishing on that note because I think it's so well said. Thank you, Michael, for coming on Culture Factor. This was amazing. Thank you so much for having me, Holly. Thank you.